Thanks, Kamal. I thought someone had left the fridge door open. Couldn't figure it out. Um, listen, the, the title that we've been using for this little series on suffering, Making Sense of the Mess of Suffering, I think it's probably a little bit overstating it, a bit ambitious. Um, perhaps a more appropriate title for this series would be something more like this. Trying to make just a tiny little bit of sense of the sometimes completely overwhelming mess of suffering. That, it's more realistic, isn't it? Um, the truth is this is, a, this is a really big deal and we can't say everything. And I don't think for a moment that you guys listening to two sermons on this topic is going to answer all of the questions and solve all of the problems that you have. But let me tell you what I do hope uh, for tonight in particular. And my aim for tonight is really just to do this one little thing. It's to help you recalibrate your thinking. Uh, let me explain what I mean by that. On Friday, I had to take my elderly, oh my goodness, really elderly Subaru, to the garage for a tune-up. Um, it was time for the, the Subi to have a basic service. So, you know, to pop the hood and get underneath and for the mechanics to clear out all the gunk and stuff that had accumulated over the last 10,000 Ks to check on the wear and tear and make sure that it was in good nick for the next 10,000 Ks on the road. We all know that cars need regular servicing. What I want you to understand tonight is the same thing goes for our thinking. Because all around us, uh, from our family at home, the stuff we watch on TV, the, uh, the articles that we read that people post links to on Facebook and stuff, um, the, the way that the news is even reported to us or the expectations that we feel from community or school or from our relatives or our religious background, all kinds of experiences, all those things feed into the way in which we think including the way that we think about suffering and pain and how we should respond to suffering and how we should see ourselves in the world in which we live. All of that stuff accumulates and changes the way in which we think. And so, kind of like my Subaru needs a regular service, so does our thinking. We need to, from time to time, get in there and just recalibrate our thinking. The reason I say that, the reason I'm a firm believer in that is because of what the Bible says. If you want to have a transformed life, you need to put some deliberate effort into the renewing of your mind. You need to be deliberate about making sure that the way you're thinking is being informed by what God is saying about the world and himself and you in his word. And so that's kind of what I'm aiming for today, a bit of a pop the hood, do a general service. So what we're going to do, we're going to try to briefly, although it's hard to do it briefly, examine um, what other religions and other cultures say about the issue of suffering, just to try to summarise that a little bit. Look at the contrast between the way the Christian worldview approaches some of those things and also think about some really big key ideas that are kind of foundational to the Christian faith, that actually say some really important stuff about the questions that come up in terms of pain and suffering. So some of the answers to suffering from the world that have probably accumulated in our own thinking, a bit of a contrast, and then three big ideas from the Bible. Before we get into that, though, I just want to point out something that's in the bulletin. Um, in the bulletin, I have recommended two 
books this week. Both of them deal with these sorts of questions. Uh, One book by Tim Keller, which is a longer, more serious book, and then a short little book by John Dixon, which is really excellent in summarising some of this stuff. Essentially, what I want to tell you tonight, the structure of that flows from things that these two books say and have helped me in thinking through these issues. So, look, if, if there's stuff that you want to pursue further, get hold of those books and read them. Maybe talk through them with a friend. Right now, though, let's dive into some of the answers from the society and other religions that might have accumulated in the way we think, influence the way we think. I think it's worth recognising that suffering is such a big deal that is something that every culture tries to have answers to. Every religious position has an approach to the issue of suffering. And that just makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because no matter who you are, no matter what period in history you live, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, you will experience suffering. Whether you experience severe suffering directly yourself or not, uh, you will at least be close to people. People who you love will go through something like that. It doesn't matter how privileged you are. Like I said before, you know, if there's anyone in the room who's going to have to face their own death at some stage, you might as well come along to the seminar. So it makes sense that all of the cultures are going to try to address this. Um, We're going to touch down on just a few of the big kind of categories in the cultures and religions of the world. And what I'm going to say is really oversimplified. I apologise for that. We don't have time to go into detail, but let's just quickly summarise stuff. So in the category of kind of moralistic approaches to suffering or moralistic kind of religions... Uh, We have the religions that say the reason that you experience suffering in your life is because of the wrong things you have done. Now, Hinduism, with its idea of karma, is probably one of the, the key examples of that in the world. So, Hinduism will say to you, bad things happen to people because of the bad things they have done. And to deal with the problem of, well, what if bad things are happening to me way out of proportion with the bad things that I've done in this, you know, I'm living a pretty good life. Hinduism has this idea of reincarnation. So if bad things are happening and you can't see an obvious cause for it, well, it must be because of bad things you've done in a previous life that are now catching up with you, that you're paying for now. Another version of that that's actually in a lot of churches is a kind of moralistic Christianized version of that. It doesn't see reincarnation as things, but that kind of Christian moralism says that if bad things are happening to me, then it has to be because I've done something to disappoint God. I've let him down somehow. I've sinned against him, and now God is making me suffer the consequences. He's paying me back for the wrong that I've done. Whatever way you approach it, in either of those systems, if If you want to avoid bad things, if you want to avoid suffering in your life, there's one thing that you should do, and that is you need to do good. If you do good, bad things won't happen, because bad things only happen when you do bad things. So whether that's Hinduism or a kind of Christianised moralistic view of the world, you you find bad things happening to you, so what do you do? You you go, well, I'm going to go to church more, I'm going to pray more, I'm going to meditate, I'm going to be kinder to people, I'm going to give to the poor, I'm going to be more generous. I, um, I actually attended a funeral not that long ago 
where I heard exactly that kind of thing being said. I was just sitting in the congregation and as part of the funeral uh, um, a eulogy, someone was reading a letter from a Catholic religious sister, a nun. And in that letter, the, the nun was saying, because of the, this person's um, tireless good works, because of their amazing generosity in giving to charity, she was confident that a door to heaven had been opened wide for this deceased person. And that's the way it works in that kind of moralistic framework. The reason for suffering is the wrongdoing that you do, but if you do enough good, then eventually you'll be rewarded, perhaps with a better incarnation, perhaps with heaven, but there will be some kind of eternal bliss for you in the end. That's one category. Uh, a different category is up there, it's called self-transcendent. It's the kind of religious system that says what you need to do is rise above the way that you perceive things in the world and understand the nature of reality. And probably the best example of that is Buddhism. Buddhism teaches that suffering doesn't come from bad things you've done in the past. Okay? It's different to the moralistic view. Suffering is a result of desires that you have, attachment to things that you have, that's unfulfilled. You kind of want a certain thing to happen, it doesn't happen, so you suffer as a consequence of it. What it also says is those desires are the result of the illusion that you are actually, a, and you exist as an individual self. But that's not the nature of true reality. I know it's getting a bit philosophical here, but, but what that means is suffering in itself is kind of an illusion as well. It's not actually real. It's based on a misunderstanding of the nature of reality. We only feel suffering because we've got things wrong. So what does Buddhism say to the person who's suffering? Well, the way that you deal with that is instead of being attached to things, you detach yourself from them. You detach your heart from things and from people. And the better you get at this kind of detachment, the closer you'll be to true enlightenment. Other societies deal with the question of suffering by talking about destiny or fate. And the classic example of that, certainly not the only one, but the classic example of that is Islam. Okay, so Islam says that where there's suffering in the world, it exists because it is the unquestionable will of Allah. And because Allah can't be thwarted and his will cannot be questioned... There's nothing really that you can do in response to suffering except to heroically endure it, to accept his will, to surrender yourself and submit to the consequences of what Allah has planned for this world. And if you stand tall and you endure his will and you put your trust in him, then in the end there will be an afterlife of glory and honour. Now, I want you to notice that in all of those religious approaches, and also Christianity is included in this, in all the religious approaches, there is a belief in some kind of eternal bliss, some kind of afterlife, or some kind of thing that, that goes beyond this life, whether that's enlightenment or heaven. In all those religions around the world, there's something beyond this life 
that the suffering person can look forward to. Because they all teach that this life, as we experience it now, is not all that there is. Now, the last column on there, the kind of secular culture that we live in today, Western secularism, that's really very different on that matter. Because our modern secular culture doesn't believe that there is anything beyond this life. It teaches us that this life really is all that there is. That means that all of the happiness that you can possibly hope to experience has got to be experienced in the here and now, in this life, right here, right now. So into this secular worldview, suffering comes as a terrible problem because suffering is something that takes away our happiness from us. Suffering disrupts our pursuit of happiness and so, so when happiness is taken away, there's nothing. What, what do you have left? There's, there's no real hope. There's no reasons or answers for those who are suffering. The best our secular culture can tell us is that, well, suffering is some kind of accident. There's no reason for it. It just happens. It's just the way that it is. People in this world, for instance, they, they might be cruel. They might do cruel things. But you know, in the end, what can you do? They're just living out their genetic inheritance that's been passed on to them through millions of years of evolution. You know, suffering just is. You can't overcome it. You can't stop it. You can't bring an end to it. All all you can do really is learn how to cope with it, learn techniques, learn practices that will help you get through. And because... This life is all there is. There's no hope that there will be any meaning to that suffering in something that comes beyond. The most we can hope for in the secular view is perhaps we can come up with a better society now where we limit suffering perhaps. But hey, you can't stop what's going to happen. Now, what I want to say is that somewhere in the mix of all that stuff I've just talked about are the ideas that have floated down to you through your experience and your friends and your family and the things you watch and see and hear, the ideas that have come into your life and are probably influencing the way that you think about suffering, sometimes without even realising it. I think it's true that amongst that range of views there is actually some true wisdom But what I want to do now is just compare the biblical worldview with some of that and show you that the Bible's view is actually radically different at some really significant points. So, first of all, unlike the kind of fatalistic cultures, Christianity doesn't say, well, you just have to stand tall and endure it. You have to heroically stand up and face suffering and trust without questioning the will of the God who stands behind it. No. Christianity says that you are allowed to, even encouraged to, express grief and questions with all kinds of loud cries into the mess of suffering that's there in the world. You see that in lots and lots of places in the Bible. And it's one of the things we saw in that passage in Hebrews chapter 5. That's what Jesus did. Jesus himself, during the days of his life on earth, he offered up prayers with loud cries and tears. He cried out a question from the cross. 
So unlike the fatalistic cultures, Christianity doesn't say, just stand there, heroically enduring it, don't question what's happening. No, Christianity says, go for it. Another comparison. Unlike Buddhism, Christians believe pain and suffering is real. You know, it's not some messed up idea that we have that if only we can transcend and understand reality differently, it will all go away. It's not an illusion. Again, think about Jesus, this time in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did he do as he faced suffering? Well, it certainly wasn't the Buddhist approach. He didn't detach himself from the good things he knew he was about to lose so that he could achieve some kind of tranquility of soul. His pain was very real. He told his friends that his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow. The Bible says he was in anguish in that garden. His uh, sweat was like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Pain and suffering are real in the Christian worldview. And unlike the moralistic kind of worldviews, the, the Hindu karmic view, where suffering is always a consequence of bad things you've done, Christians actually believe that, well, while that's true of some suffering, it's not true of all suffering. Uh, suffering is often unjust. Suffering is sometimes way out of proportion. That's the reality. Uh, you see that in the book of Job. So Job, we see in, in the first few chapters, is a righteous man. He's a man who does what's good. He doesn't deserve any suffering. But suddenly he loses all his possessions, his family and his health. And the first couple of chapters of Job makes the deliberate point of making sure we understand that this suffering is not happening because of anything he's done wrong. It is unjust. It is out of proportion. It's not that moralistic tit-for-tat model. But most of all, you see that, that system of unjustness in the person of Jesus. Uh, in one of the books I recommended, Tim Keller writes this, if anyone ever deserved a good life on the basis of character and behaviour, Jesus did. That'd be right, wouldn't it? Jesus didn't do anything wrong to deserve suffering, but Keller says, but he did not get that good life. In fact, the Apostle Peter, when he talks about unjust suffering, he actually holds up Jesus as an example for us. He writes this, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. In other words, unjust suffering is likely to come into your life too. He says he committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. Do you see how different that is to that moralistic, if you're suffering, it's because you did something wrong? Uh, it says, no sin, no deceit found in his mouth, and yet Jesus suffered. So Christianity is quite upfront about the reality of unjust suffering. One last comparison. Unlike secularism... Christianity doesn't see suffering as meaningless or accidental. It's not something that we've got to fix. It's not something that we have to avoid at all costs. This is what Byrne was talking about last week. God is usually doing something through suffering. And right at the core of the New Testament message 
is that this idea that what Jesus was doing was deliberately putting himself right in the path of the very worst kind of suffering. And that he was suffering because that was how God was going to fix the world. Here's one example of that from Colossians chapter 1. Through his suffering on the cross, God was reconciling to himself all things, whether things in heaven or things on earth. Let's now think about some of those three three big ideas, big building blocks of the Christian faith and the way in which they offer some answers as we think about the issue of suffering. Big idea number one is from the very beginning of the Bible. The Bible's, they're they're kind of twinned ideas. So the, the idea of the creation and the fall, those things go together. The Christian doctrine of creation says that when God made this world, he made it good. He made it very good. Last verse of Genesis chapter 1, the verse immediately before the ones we read, God looks at all that he's made and he says it is very good. So the suffering and the mess of decay that we see in the world around us today, we need to remember is not a part of God's original plan for this world. It's not that this is just the way things are. That's really important to realise because often stuff creeps into the way we talk and think. So one example of that, sometimes, I I think it's a fairly common thing these days, we were probably taught it by the Lion King uh, when we were watching Disney movies, is we say things like, you know, don't be afraid of death. Death is just a natural part of life. But actually, that's not true, is it? If, if the Christian doctrine of creation is true, death is not a natural part of life. Death is this terrible interruption into God's good plan and purpose. That is not the way things are meant to be. God's plan for this world is that it should be very good. I think that's part of why the, the flow from Genesis 1 to chapter 2 is what we have. God looks at the world, he sees that it's very good, and then what does God do? He rested. His work of creation was complete. There was nothing more to do. Everything was as it should be. But it doesn't stay that way for long. Twin doctrines, remember, creation and fall. That's that first building block. And in the very next chapter of the Bible, Genesis 3 shows us that the brokenness and darkness and suffering that we're experiencing in this world has kind of unfolded out of Our refusal to let God be God and to let him rule over everything. So in our first parents refusing to trust God and deciding they would know better themselves, humanity fell. That's how the the theologians describe it. There was this fall into this, now God's good design of a good creation is broken and fractured. Corruption has come in and twisted things apart. The result being, you've got creation and fall together, is that our world is both, it's, it's a mixture of good things and bad things. There are sorrows and joys in this life. There's still plenty of goodness for us to enjoy, but it's nowhere near what it's supposed to be. And those twin themes of creation and fall teach us that we should expect in this world exactly what we do see exactly what we do experience. 
There is goodness there. But the goodness is messed up and sometimes it's messed up terribly. And sometimes it, it burns within us because we think this is not the way that it should be. Because God's image is still imprinted on our hearts. We know that it should be better. One example of the way we experience that is, is in work. Um, so in Genesis chapter 3, when God is telling uh, the man about the consequences of sin, one of the things he says is, from now on, uh, as you work the ground, your work is going to be frustrated by thorns and thistles. What that means for our own work is sometimes our work produces something really good that we get satisfaction from, it's enjoyable, but sometimes our hard work can be taken away. The good results is taken away by injustice and unforeseen disasters. Creation and fall. The second big idea is to do with where history is headed, what comes at the end of the Bible, although not only at the end of the Bible. Christianity teaches us about a day of judgment and a time of renewal and restoration. So first of all, Christianity teaches that we will all one day stand before God in judgment. There is a judgment day and no one is going to get away with anything. So no matter how much our court system here struggles to get real justice, there is a day coming when God will establish true and perfect justice and every single wrong and every single act of moral evil will be set right. It will be accounted for. No one's going to get away with anything at all. Now for me at least, and I hope for you as well, that's a message of hope, isn't it? It tells us that true justice is not a lost cause, even though it's broken in our experience in this world. True justice will come. Another consequence of that is, it means we can live in this world without being vindictive and vengeful when people hurt us. Because we know that no one is going to get away with anything. We can do our best to try to find reconciliation, but if the, the other person is not willing to come to the party... We don't need to find revenge. We can live at peace in trusting our troubles to him who judges justly. That's what Jesus did when he faced the cross. But it's not just the judgment day. It's also what lies on the other side of that, that brings hope in a world of suffering and pain. See, not only will there be justice, the Bible says God's plan is to make all things new. We talked about this in Isaiah, to bring about a new creation, new heavens and new earth, where there is no more sin, where there's an end to suffering, no more pain, where every tear is going to be wiped away by God himself. The Bible teaches us that it's not just us, but the whole created order is messed up by sin. We see that in Romans chapter 8, the reading uh, that we saw there. Even the creation, the, the trees and the rocks and the fish and the hills... The creation has been subjected to brokenness and frustration but it's not going to be that way forever because even the creation itself is going to be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom, the glorious freedom of the children of God. 
Now, there's no time to go into it, but what you need to remember is at the heart of that hope is something real and concrete that happened in history, the resurrection of Jesus physically from the dead. That is the guarantee from God that this promise of a new creation is actually going to come true. We've got to move on, though. One last building block. Um, Creation and fall, judgment and renewal, the third big idea that's central to the Christian faith, and provides really important answers in the face of suffering, is what we celebrate at Christmas and Easter. Fancy theological words, incarnation and atonement. So at Christmas, we celebrate the the incarnation, the truth that in Jesus Christ, God put on flesh. He became one of us. He experienced all the ordinariness and all the weaknesses and difficulties that we experience. That means the Christian God, the God who we worship, knows personally what it's like to live in a world of pain and suffering. He knows personally what it's like to live in poverty. Knows what it's like to have an empty belly and be hungry. He knows personally what it's like to be disappointed, to be betrayed by friends with a same kind of feeling of betrayal that maybe some of you have that sometimes just catches you unaware and you well up with tears. See, one of the things that's really important to understand is that the God of the Bible who created the world and is going to judge the world, he's not far off and distant. He knows suffering firsthand. He came into our world and lived it. But more than that, The Easter part, the atonement part, the cross part teaches us that our God actually has wounds. On the cross, Jesus went through something that is beyond the worst kind of human suffering. He went into this kind of cosmic rejection and pain that is infinitely greater than anything we'll ever experience. And he went through that pain. He, he went into it and suffered for us so that we might be able to be part of that renewal, that new creation that he's preparing for everyone who's bet their life on him. Creation and fall, judgment and renewal, but I think most importantly, the, the incarnation and the cross. One writer puts it like this. We do not know the reason God allows evil and suffering to continue or even why it's so random. But now we at least know what the reason is not. It cannot be that he does not love us. It cannot be that he doesn't care. He's so committed to our ultimate happiness that he was willing to plunge into the greatest depths of suffering himself. I think in all of those things we're starting to get some answers in suffering. Now some of you might sit here and think, well, yeah, that's all well and good, but you know, if, if anything, that's only half an answer. The, the point I want you to go home with, though, is to realise that, yeah, maybe it is only half the answer, but it is exactly the half the answer that we need in the midst of our own suffering. The incarnation and the cross reveal to us something 
about the character of who God is. They reveal something to us of the immensity of his love for us. And they give us every reason to run to him and trust in him for our refuge in the midst of our suffering and pain. The next song that we're going to sing talks about having a shelter in the storm, having a a saviour who has wounds, who holds us in his arms. That's the part of the answer that is so significant for us. The incarnation and the cross in particular, if you forget everything else, remember this, they reveal the character of God and the immensity of his love. They tell us that while the tears are running down our cheeks, he is exactly the person who we want to be running to for comfort and strength. Can I encourage you to do that? Let's pray. Lord God, this whole question of suffering and pain is huge. And we do know that we're unlikely to ever kind of really grasp hold of all the answers to it. But we thank you that you reveal to us some incredible stuff about yourself. And in the scriptures, in the gospel, you give us answers that make sense of our world and our experience and give us hope and comfort. So help us, Father, to be really self-conscious about the renewing of our mind. Help us to pop the hood and have that clean out from time to time. So that instead of just trying to endure it or just trying to pretend that it's not really there, we can deal with suffering with the resources you give us. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.